Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned. This podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern variety. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice you can make. Don't say we didn't warn you. I love sexing <laughs> up Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean, it's what we've been doing for 400 years. That's why it's still here, yeah, right? Well, and that's also just what we've been doing. add sex to the more sex. For five years. We just, we love, <laughs> true. we love to sex up Shakespeare. You know, we just I mean, like that's to more of a byproduct, though. Slip into like, a we're little sexy, negligee so. and just be like, hey, <laughs> hey, Bill. Yeah, that, that too. Let's be like, the listeners never knew until now. We're both in like super sexy underwear <laughs> every time we record. But also like Shakespeare themed underwear. Like yeah. cod pieces and ruffs mm. and nothing else. Mm, yes. <laughs> my my lovely linen shift, you know? Mmm. Nice pair of hose. Don't you don't you love it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love us. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jazz Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. Mm. And this week, it's Comedy of Errors 201. Bet you forgot about Comedy of Errors. Thank you so <laughs> much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. <laughs> I would never forget about Comedy of Errors, like literally never. I, I mean, I can't, but it's been yeah. so long since we've even talked about it. That's true. It has been our show because uh, the 101 was our season two opener. And right. now we're in season yeah. five. Yeah. So, yeah, it's been a oh, minute. Here's Rebecca. Rebecca yeah. wants to come talk about a comedy of errors. Oh, great. She wants to do it. Oh, she's so pretty. Oh, I Does she have a twin stuff. so that she can demonstrate for us? Look how pretty she is. Look at she's her. She's a very pretty girl. Look at her. Look how pretty. I love her okay. bedazzled collar. I know. Ooh, She's a fancy girl. Just what girl. I wanted. <laughs> See, she knows. She knows She's what like, you like. So sexy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But first, uh, but yeah, where first, were we? <laughs> speaking of things we like, it's time for our happy hour. Oh wait, before we get to happy hour, I, oh, uh huh. Sorry, I was just thinking while you were talking, because this episode's gonna air on the twenty fifth. Fifth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to say happy birthday to you thanks because it's your birthday right after that pretty close after that yeah and i want to say happy birthday right back to you (gasps) because it's your birthday right before this airs it sure is yeah Yeah. this episode drops right between our birthdays it's like we planned it it was like we planned it it's just you know a couple of late october birthday queens happy birthday to us then yeah girl yeah yeah. All right. Great. Now we can now we can talk about okay. other shit. Now happy hour. Okay. <laughs> now great. we can get to the, you know, the other stuff. But like yeah. we had to get the birthday shit out of the no, way. No, no, no. You're right. We should take a moment to celebrate us. Okay. Because we are So awesome. it's time for happy hour. That's a cocktail of stuff that makes us happy in this <sighs> dumpster fire mm-hmm. of life. Uh things we like, such as inclusivity and decolonization i'm still figuring out what that means but i'm learning that's part of doing the work babe yep uh we also like doing the work and anti-racist pedagogy 
Yep. We also like just really wholesome things that have nothing to do with making ourselves better people, like puppies and <gasps> kitties. And like Rebecca. Rebecca. She just poked her head into the frame. She was just yeah. like, I want to say hi to Auntie Aubrey. I want to say <laughs> hello, mother. Okay, Rebecca. Or just or just to interrupt, you know, the flow of the pod in general. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> so this is our segment where we recommend some shit that isn't terrible. Um, I've got a couple of play recommendations I want to throw out there today. I was going to ask what these were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So believe it or not, plays are still being written. They what? Didn't just, I know. They didn't just stop I being mean, written when Shakespeare died. It's kind sounds of, fake. It's kind of really okay. hard for me to wrap my head around this, but it's true. Um so I uh, I am lucky enough to be on the committee at ASC that like chooses you know the plays we do in the coming seasons and God, so, so fancy yeah so these were some plays that ended up on my reading list um, so that we can talk about them in our season choosing process um, the first one is White by James I James I James I'm not quite sure how to say his last name um, but it's I. J-A-M-E-S. <laughs> um, that is a play about, I just read it today. Both of these I just read today. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, and so this first one is about like this white artist, this visual artist who is having like some white guy problems and he's upset about these like diversity initiatives that are keeping him out of like this famous gallery that he wants to have. Yeah. So he hires a uh, a lovely black woman to pretend to be the artist of his work. <laughs> yeah, that's he what does it's about. what? Yeah, he hires a a black actress to pretend to be the artist of you know who created the work that he wants displayed, and he like gets into anyway hijinks and uh, a lot of discomfort about race and a lot of cringe ensue. And, and I think even the stage directions, a note from the playwright in the middle of the script said, this is going to read like a rom-com until it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which, like, I know. And I was like, thank you. That is very helpful for me to figure out the tone of this play. Um, but it's it's fascinating. And then this other one, like, whew, it was, whew. Um, it's got a very long title, so stick with me. It's called... Okay. We are proud to present a presentation about the Herero of Namibia, formerly known as Southwest Africa, from the German Sudwest Africa, between the years 1884 and 1915, by Jackie Sibley's Drury. And it's about these actors trying to put on a presentation about the Herero of Namibia, the genocide of the Herero of Namibia committed by the Germans in at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um so it's about colonization. It's about genocide. It's about also these three black actors and three white actors in a room together trying to figure out how to have really difficult conversations and how to make this content uh, true and palatable. Uh, and it's just it's just it's very now. <laughs> it's I was going to say play. timely. Yeah, it's it's a play about trying to have really difficult conversations about race and genocide and stuff. Um and yeah, oh. wow. yeah, but it's, but it's really, it was really good. It was really good. And it, um, obviously being a Shakespeare company, I'm always having to think like in my brain, how does this talk to something in Shakespeare or how mm. does a Shakespeare play have something to contribute to this? Or like, how mm-hmm. can they be a, a two sides of the same coin in some mm-hmm. way? Like, right. How is this going to fit? Um, so that just kind of got my brain churning and these are fan fucking tastic plays. Just 
go read them, people. They're not all that long. Modern plays don't take all that long to read because there's a lot of negative space on the page. It's just, you know, they're very right. easy to read. Um, the content's difficult in these particular plays, but like easy reads. Go read them. Go expand your expand your canon. To quote the Hedge Pig Initiative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what you got? Um, well, uh, to follow on the heels of that, mine's just like an afterthought, basically. But register to vote. Hell yeah! <laughs> That's my recommendation: is register to vote. Do that. Um, you can do all of that. You can check if you are already registered. You can update your registration. You can find your polling place. You can do all of these things and more at vote.org. Um, in many states, the deadline to register before the uh, November elections is coming up or has already passed. So get on it like literally the second you hear me say this, I want you to press pause and go check your registration right now. In fact, we'll wait. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. Go vote. So, Go register. Yeah. Now that you're back, uh, after you have registered or checked your registration, uh, and then the step two is actually make sure you vote in November. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I know it's it's like it's not a midterms year. We're we're sort of in the on the off cycle, but that doesn't mean that there isn't really fucking important shit on the ballots yeah. in a bunch of places. Virginia, particularly, is is in need yes. of your votes this year. Yes. Yes. So if you live is. in Virginia fucking get on it you know um, what i just voted today i did early <gasps> voting yep I'm so proud i went down to city hall right downtown and i just voted early it was a really easy thing to God, do but yeah virginia is so one of those hot. weird states that has gubernatorial mm-hmm. elections in an odd numbered year mm-hmm. so if your state is like my state yeah um, you might actually have some really important uh things to vote on this fall vote 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 vote, vote. we love voting we think voting is hot. In fact, I don't date people who don't vote, so it's a deal uh, breaker. Yeah, I don't like. I don't know if you, <laughs> any listeners are out there being like, ah, I I had a shot with Jess Hamlet, but now I don't because <laughs> I don't vote. Well, if you vote, you could still have a shot. I mean, maybe. No promises. This is not a dating show. This is not the hurly burly dating show. <laughs> it's not. We're not here to find ourselves. What the hell have I been doing for the last five years? This has just mates. been a long con to get you in bed. Sorry. What the fuck, well, Jessica? I mean, get you. I mean like, you and me Even my a different cat story. Like it. <laughs> a different story, Aubrey. I was, I'm oh. saying like this show does not exist to find us date mates out in, in the wider world. You mean I'm not like seducing someone right now with I mean, my you might be. witty banter? You're seducing me, so. Well, all right. <laughs> oh, this is too hot to handle. Okay, so Moving that's on. our happy hour. <laughs> um, so this is a 201 level episode, which means we operate on the assumption that you have a basic familiarity with this play, Comedy of Errors. Um, so we're not going to do a synopsis. If you're new to the Comedy of Errors, or if you just need a refresher, or if you're here by accident, we have a 101 level episode that you can listen to way, mm-hmm. way back Yep. From this deep in our catalog from season two. Episode 29. There we go. I know. Yep. And this is episode 108. So it's been a while ago. <laughs> it's been a minute. Yeah. Been a while ago. Um, so on 201s, what we do is we go narrow and deep on a couple of topics relating to the play. So today we are talking about early performances mm-hmm. and 
The Great Source Text Mystery. <gasps> Did you say mystery? I need you to put in like some spooky music there, you know, like it some will. mysterious music. Yeah. This, this is our pre-Halloween episode, so I can definitely do that. Oh shit, it is. Yeah. Mm. I'll try to find like a wolf howling or something mm. like that. Werewolves in this play, or bats, oh, or skeletons. Can we? Is there? Can we take a hard pivot into spoop on the comedy <laughs> bears? I don't think we can. No. Uh, okay. Well, all right. So I'm gonna start us because that's yeah, what yeah, I yeah. do. Take is, it away. This is how I do. Okay. So Kent Cartwright, who is the editor of the Arden Three text of the play, tells us that by 1709, comedy bears was not being performed publicly in London, although it is possible that a very 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 short version of the play was circulating privately for like private performances in like living rooms and shit we have some late 17th century prompt books of the play which indicate that just like about one lifetime after shakespeare's death the play had been reduced from what it was into farce and caricature instead of you know preserving the plays like more serious material about like marriage and identity and interpersonal relationships and you know okay before you said that last part i was gonna be like wait it was reduced from farce to farce yeah i mean the the play reads like a farce (laughs) yeah the play is funny i'm not i don't i'm not here saying that that the play is not a farce i i Kent Cartwright might be here saying that the play is not a farce, but there's so much more to it. You're right. You're you right. know, yes. there's yes, there there's is. loss and reunion and yeah. abuse and, you know, all kinds of like heavy, yeah. important topics, um, as well as hilarious mistaken identity. Mm-hmm. So we so we have some evidence that the play was performed pretty sparingly during the restoration. This is one of those plays that, you know, saw some performances early in Shakespeare's career, maybe, you know, still in his lifetime. And then Shakespeare mm-hmm. died and the, the folio came out and the play just sort of, you know, disappeared from favor for a while. So we can guess uh, at productions at the Smock Alley Theater in Dublin, which is like the cutest name for a place. Smock Alley <laughs> Theater. Adorable. Um, uh, so this was in Dublin in about 1670. There was another one at the Barbican in London in about 1672. Um, and then there was one production in France uh, at the English Roman Catholic College, we think, uh, in 1694. I know, right? Like, uh, I know. Okay. Yeah, right? Super random. That is random. Yeah, so we don't we don't know a whole lot about any of these productions, but what we do know about the Smock Alley production is that they used um, for their for their copy text of this play for their the script that they used um, was the third folio text of Comedy of Errors, um, so that's the sixteen sixty four version. Yeah, sixteen sixty four, and it cuts about thirty percent of the play. This play is already fucking short. If you cut yeah. 30%, what are you fucking left with is my question. So some of the cuts that we know that they made are they come from, you know, Aegean's super long opening speech about the fucking shipwreck and the weather and the shipwreck and the lost suns. And there was like a fucking storm and a shipwreck and, you know, that whole thing. And then what else gets cut is most of Luciana and Adriana's debate about marriage in Act 2, Scene 1. So those are some of the things that we lose, which has the, you know, has the effect of making this play 
more farcical than it already was because we we lose out on some of the balancing like serious material um and then we get to the 18th century and we get the hilarious adaptations of the play that change the name you know like we had um gerastus and fania is that the the uh winner's tale adaptation is that what that's called um we read it okay we did read it and i still don't remember yeah my brain is no it's fine it was a long time ago um or, you know, we get the the Taming of the Shrew adaptations that I think is just called, like, Kate and Petruchio, that right. kind of shit. Yeah. So one adapta- adaptation of this was called Everybody Mistaken, <laughs> which is adorable. Um, and that happens in 1716. And then in 1734, we get See If You Like It, <laughs> which <laughs> I can't. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I want to see a play that's called See If You Like It. <laughs> I mean, but there's, isn't that, wasn't that confusing for folks? Um, like, because of As You Like It? I'm, I assume I, As You Like no. It was still floating around. <laughs> yeah. Right? Probably, probably not this so was much. not confusing. No. Okay. I, I, uh, I would be surprised. So toward the latter half of the century, uh, Comedy Verse falls into that, that group of plays that were adapted and rewritten. Mm. Um, most famously, you know, by people like David Garrick and Nam Tate and Collie Sibber. Um, mm. We've talked about the Tate Lear on the podcast. We have. Yes, we have. Um, I am sure we've talked about the hilarious Garrick Hamlet. Yes. Um, I know that we read it or read parts of it in grad school, um, yeah. but I'm, I'm sure that we've also talked about it. Anyway, so there's there's this whole sort of tradition of 18th century writers taking these plays and like fucking rewriting them. And this happens to Comedy of Errors as well. All right. So Thomas Hull is the guy who adapted Comedy of Errors and his adaptation was either the only one or like the most popular one. And it may have been performed for the first time in 1762 at Covent Garden. So his his text of the play that he, you know, rewrote and adapted was printed twice, most recently, most recently in 1793. It was, you know, recent. super recent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it was. But this is the thing is that this was the dominant version of the play that was performed well into the 19th century. Like Shakespeare got shut out of his own play, which he did in, you know, all of these sort of 18th century adaptations. That's not super uncommon anyway so the this adaptation version removes the magic it amps up patriarchal themes it expands the the final recognition scene in act five um and annoyingly it cuts the final version of the dromeos which like why would you do that yeah yeah it also cuts all of the material that critiques the abuse of the servant characters so sure you know just beating your servants hilarious not problematic in any way i mean looking at those dates though like we're at the height of like transatlantic slave trade here we wouldn't want to denigrate the trade of half of the western world yeah just just because it was common doesn't make it okay which is what no, I've been saying to my no, students. No, no argument all day. here. No <laughs> <Yeah>. argument here. <laughs> um, okay, so then this brings us to 1819, where we get the fucking opera version of what? the play. I know. What? Okay, I already know what we're going to talk about in our 301 for this play. How Jesus. mad are you that you've never seen the opera comedy of errors? I'm not really um, an opera person, but I would be if I could see right? this. Yeah, so the the opera version is based on Thomas Hull's adaptation, but with the addition of songs. So I think it's less opera and more just like musical. Okay. Um, but they call it an opera in the Arden. So like, I'm not here to 
argue with the Arden. Um, it was super successful. It had an initial initial run of 27 performances. It included a hunting scene in snowy mountains. What? I know. Why? I have questions. I, uh-huh. I have so many questions. <laughs> yep. Um, and then it also had a final sort of medley that included material from both Midsummer and The Tempest. So dying to get my hands on this. Dying. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then wow. I'm going to wrap up with what I think is sort of unquestionably the most fantastic 19th century production. Um, it opened in New York in 1845, and it was produced by Thomas and Henry Placide, or maybe just Placid. We're American. And they were a set of twins. They were twin brothers, like real, mm-hmm. real live twins. Um, Actual and, identical twins. Yes. And they played the Dromeos, and they gave themselves a shit ton of extra material because why wouldn't you Uh honestly yeah and the show ran for 20 goddamn years wow i'm obsessed 20 years just 20 years playing these twins yeah i mean wouldn't you get bored i i guess if the money's that good you just don't care right the money must have been so your twin brother all day so you know yes yeah um yeah so i don't have a lot of like critical things to say about these because i'm i'm kind of just regurgitating information here i haven't actually seen any of these texts but i'm dying to get my hands on them if you want to read more about any of these productions you can do that uh they're all in the introduction of the arden 3 version of the text so you know wherever arden 3s are sold you can pick one up and get you know a little more detail um and hopefully we'll be able to track down one or two of these scripts and we can do a 301 episode on them or you know uh-huh. something so something yeah uh, so over over to you obs thanks okay so i had originally just wanted to come in and talk about the source text which is mostly like 99 percent plautus's like totally stolen from plautus's the manacmi or the mm-hmm. manacmi doesn't matter monachmai or monachmai you know latin say it however you fucking want okay great so in my head i hear monachmi so i'm gonna say monachmi okay do it um so and it is that this this play is you know just basically ripped off you know wholesale um the big plot points the big devices are ripped off from from plautus's play uh shakespeare however being the magpie that he was um mm. he stole and then changed right uh so plautus's borrowed ma- and embellished borrowed and embellished that's a better way to put it yes uh, right i mean but also he, stole like yeah he just like took it and that. bedazzled it and then put it, and then spit it back out into the world yeah. that's that's what he did. So some of the bedazzling that Shakespeare did to Plautus's Menachme uh, is uh, he added a second set of twins. So in the original text, there was only uh, what we think of as the Antiphili, right? The two Antiphilus mm-hmm. twins. And then there was just the one servant. So the one servant gets confused about who's his master, whatever. So uh, Shakespeare added another Dromeo, right? Another servant. So there's double the fun. Mm. <laughs> you know, he also like minimized the courtesan. Plautus's Menachme has like a has that court the random courtesan that pops up in comedy oh, of errors. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she just pops up and she's like, that stupid Antiphilus, he said he was gonna give me a chain. Like she's got right. maybe, you know, 60 lines in one scene. Shakespeare took that and just like shrunk it from Plautus's play. In Plautus's play, she is in several scenes. <clears throat> 
the the Antiphilus or the Monachmus is his name, right? Uh, that character is definitely in an ongoing relationship with this kept woman, right? So she's a much larger role in the plotus play. Uh, so Shakespeare took that, took her status and actually gave it back to the wife character, Adriana. There is no Adriana as named. Uh, she's just called wife. <laughs> she's nameless in Plautus. And Shakespeare changed a lot of the names. He changed some of the location names, like from Epidamnum to Ephesus and things like right. that. Although the fact that the the traveling twins are Syracusan mm-hmm. is, stays the same. So, so they, you know. Don't they... Hmm? come from epidamnum in this play isn't that like their uh, there is a, there origin? is a mention of epidamnum in, I was gonna in say, comedy bears or like if it's but, not this play someone somewhere talks about epidamnum yes I know no this they name. do in like aegean's aegeus aegean aegean's big like monologue it's something right. about epidamnum they do have some kind of roots okay. in epidamnum say, um, but it's not their like, their, like born there or some shit right Right. Uh, there's a, you know, instead of the dad looking for his son, like in Plautus's original, there's like a whole prologue about how like the dad died of grief and it was actually uh, Menachmus's grandfather who named him and kind of raised the lost twin. And like there's a whole different reason why he was lost instead of being swept away at sea. He was like swept away in a river, like just like small, like little details like that. And then change names of characters and stuff. Uh, but my question is, so like, and I've seen, actually, I was lucky enough to get to see Plautus's Menachme one time. At, cool. Yeah. Back when Shakespeare Santa Cruz was still Shakespeare Santa Cruz instead of Santa Cruz Shakespeare, uh, when they were still affiliated <laughs> with the seems university. seems like a ridiculous name change. I, I, I know, it, but it was a whole thing. Oh okay. I'll take your word was a, for it. All right. It was a whole yeah. thing. Okay. Um, but they... Used to do, they probably still do this. I haven't visited Santa Cruz Shakespeare Festival in a while, but they used to do this thing where like their acting fellows had a a show that they did and it was like a one-off on a weekend that sure. like they were, you know, extras and spear carriers and whatever in the in the main productions, but then they got to have their own show. Mm-hmm. And one summer they did the Comedy Bearers, which was like a main stage show. Right. And then the interns and the fellows got to do the Monacme so that you Cute. could see, yeah, so you could come in on the weekend, on this particular weekend and see the two stories like next to each other um so i actually got to see it and it is a romp it's a silly silly play just with fewer twins <laughs> that's really it's like it's like the same fucking play so that's kind of fun but my question is how did shakespeare get his hands on this story right mm-hmm. and here's why i ask that okay ask it tell me why because because we know right and i um i should cite my sources as well i'm looking at the Oxford Shakespeare edition. I don't know which edition from the Oxford University Press. An old one from 2002. So anyway, that's my, I'm reading the notes from this one. So not an Arden. I couldn't get my hands on an Arden. It was a whole thing. Okay, so here's the mystery, right? This play, uh, the Comedy of Errors, I should say, Shakespeare's play, was first performed, we think, in 1594. Mm -hmm. And there's an anecdote at the beginning of these notes. God, I love an anecdote. I Fuck know. me up with an anecdote, Whitlock. Yeah, so there's an anecdote about, uh, and this is why scholars think it was first performed in 1594. Late in the evening on 28th December 1594, Innocent's Day, in the Hall of Gray's Inn at Holborn, London, a company of players performed a comedy of errors, in, par- in parentheses, in the title, like to Plautus his Monachmus, after a particularly riotous several hours of banqueting and merrymaking presided over by the Prince of Purpool, P-U-R-P-O-O-L-E, Purpool, Purple? It's probably purple. 
given British pronunciation, <laughs> the Prince of Purple <laughs> um, at the inn's Christmas Lord of Misrule uh, was called. And let's see, it was ever afterwards called the Night of Errors. Like there's just some crazy shit went down at these right. at these inns, right? But that's that's the first record of its performance is the winter of 1594. Okay. However, the English translation by William Warner of Plautus's Menachme and other works by Plautus was not printed until 1595. It's like a full year later. It was not hmm. printed. Mm-hmm. So the question is, there's like one of one of two things could have happened that mm-hmm. I can think of, or maybe it okay. was something else entirely, because I wasn't there. I'm not a time traveler. <laughs> what? Um, so I'm not. I wish I were sometimes, Exclusive. but I'm Exclusive. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I know. Really, really sharing all my secrets today. God, you just um, missed what I'm us wearing so while we years. record, what I am and am not. <laughs> I am not a time traveler. Sorry, people. Um, so the question is: Did Shakespeare read the original story in the original Latin, mm-hmm. which was possible, right? Well, uh, he could have done. He had a Latin grammar school he, education. He could have done. Yeah, right. Yeah. It, he could have done. Um, and some scholars think that maybe, right. Uh, some stage directions and some speech headings kind of seem to indicate that. It's, they seem to indicate like they were translated directly or lifted directly from Latin and not from English, from an English translation. Sure. Also, Shakespeare completely stole the whole, um, if you'll recall from the Comedy Bearers, the the scene, the lunch scene where the Antiphilus of Ephesus brings his friends home from for dinner mm-hmm. and he's locked out of the house there's like the crow. whole exactly and there's that whole scene of like him trying to get in but the right, other and dromeo and, and antipolis are already inside the house yeah um yeah. that whole Hilarious. scene was lifted from a different plautus play which had mm. no english translation in shakespeare's lifetime okay um so it so like that was lifted from an untranslated play so maybe you know, maybe it's uh, maybe Shakespeare was able to completely, you know, read the whole thing in Latin or yeah. or there is some evidence and some indication that the handwritten manuscript mm-hmm. of William Warner's translation mm-hmm. was floating around London for a few months before it actually went to the printer. For sure. So did Shakespeare see a copy of the translation's manuscript before it was printed? Maybe. Such mm-hmm. things were not totally unknown to happen, right? Mm-hmm. London's theater and literary scene was a pretty small bubble. It is possible that he and William Warner were buds mm-hmm. and that, you know, he got a, a, a firsthand look at that uh, before it went to the printer. So, like, it's just it's just a mystery. And I think it still it still perplexes scholars a little bit, especially anti-Stratfordians. I think, yes. Yeah. Who, yeah. you know, they're the ones. For, they're always the ones. Right. They're, you know, it causes them some consternation because they think that an, un, you know, a son of a glove maker who had a basic grammar school education couldn't right. possibly have read well, the original text in Latin and taken I mean, the plot devices he wanted. That's the bullshit thing, right? Is that. Right. A basic grammar school education in 1570 was Mm -hmm. better than, like, any education that any of us has today. Um, And they they started learning. I mean, grammar school education was in Latin and they studied uh, classical drama, which would include Latin and Greek fucking Plautus. Right. So it's entirely possible that he read it as a 10 year old and you know loved it and 
hung yeah. on to it or you know could could still do latin and also you know who fucking shakespeare fucking hung out with was the fucking nobility we know that right. he had some patrons <laughs> and what do we know about the fucking nobility right and university educated friends <laughs> yes yeah, right and you know and the university wits and people like christopher marlowe who were all his contemporaries uh-huh. in the theater uh-huh. right so it is entirely possible that even even if he ran into some bits he couldn't translate, he could find someone around him who could. I yeah. just think it's interesting. I I, I sure. think it's, For you sure. know, um, it is a little mysterious, like, how did he get a copy of this? Mm-hmm. And, like... You know, if he did wait some or, you know, for an English translation, like, how did he get it? How did he know William Warner? I'm just so curious about things like that. Um, William Warner himself, kind of an interesting, he sounded like a failed poet, if I read this right. Had a couple of other things that he translated. Um, a minor late Elizabethan man of letters and a lawyer by profession. As an author, he was known principally for his elaborately structured prose romance Pan his syrinx from 1584. Do you mean panegyrics? Pan his syrinx. S Y R I N X. That's that's the title of something. Okay. Carry on. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, And his massive part historical, part literary compilation in verse, Albion's England. (laughs) So, like. I mean, kind of a random dude. So, like, he wasn't—he wasn't a poet. He was a lawyer with some poetic inclinations. And we know, you know, in yeah. in his life outside of the theater, William Shakespeare actually was fairly litigious. You know, like suing people right and left. So, I mean, maybe maybe he knew William Warner through other means. Um, but this is still early in his career, so I I don't know. I don't know. It's just interesting. Like, how did he get the source text? Which one did he read? Right. Uh, you know. Interesting to think about. Also, yeah. folks, go and read Plautus's Menachemy. In the Oxford that I'm looking at, and I'm sure this is true of Arden editions, there's actually a full text copy of the source text, uh, Plautus's play, the Menachemy. Mm, I so, actually don't think the Arden does include <gasps> the Menachemy. Doesn't? I don't oh think my. it does. Um, well, uh, this one does. And it's, nope. it's pretty short. You know, it just sure lives doesn't. in the appendices at the back. So. It really should. Like, why is that not a fucking appendix? Kent Cartwright. Yeah, Kent Cartwright. Not not me calling out a super tenured professor on <laughs> my podcast <laughs> for not including something in an appendix. I wonder if it's in Arden 2. Why would you take that shit out, Arden? Arden 4, put it back. Hashtag put it back. Come on, listeners. Everybody tweet at Arden <laughs> with hashtag put it back. Yeah. This is the hill and we're, we're definitely going to die on. Email Tiffany Stern. <laughs> that too. Be like, Could hey, T-Stiz, <laughs> get, uh, some, get some appendices back in there. Yeah. Right. Damn it. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, it's a fun little read. It's a weird yeah. little, it's a weird, fun little play. Cool. Um, yeah. So we ready to move on to a segment mm-hmm. that we're resurrecting um, that we, yeah, haven't we haven't done, done in a while. while. Yeah. Um, but in 201 episodes, we are known from time to time to do uh-huh. a segment called How to Grad School. Yeah. How to Grad School. Um, this this edition of this feature is uh-huh. dedicated to a Hurley Burley super fan, Austin, who has emailed us uh, several times. Uh, you know, Which lovely not, things. Not in a harassing way. No, we're not, no, not in a harassing way. In a, <laughs> in a, like, in a really, yeah, this no, in like again. a really lovely way. But like yeah. several times, yeah. um, to say nice things, but also mm-hmm. ask us some questions. And I mm-hmm. figured instead of trying to sit and answer you in an email, Austin, mm-hmm. we're just gonna mm-hmm. 
resurrect this segment and answer some of the questions that you sent us. So you asked, uh, what did the application process involve for you and how did you prepare at, I guess, the master's level and the PhD level? So Jess, do you want to take a stab at your answer? Uh, Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I've said on the podcast before, this is not going to be helpful, <laughs> that I, I fell into grad school accidentally. Um, I never planned to go for my master's. I applied to one place um, that does not have a habit of rejecting people for, you know, good or ill. Yeah. So and then for PhD apps, which I you know was prepared for and took a lot more seriously because by that time I had kind of been like, all right, this is my path. Um, it was a lot of drafting. A lot of drafting, getting a lot of feedback, Mm -hmm. writing, you know, personal statement after personal statement, Mm -hmm. which I think is about the only document I had to actually craft for for the PhD applications is just the the personal statement. I had a, you know, a writing sample. I literally cannot think of any other thing that the PhD (laughs) applications required from me, like, you know, transcripts and CV, whatever. But like that's standard. Um, I did a lot more. There was a lot more for the job market. But you know, right. maybe that's the next segment we have is how to job market. Let's not. Let's yeah. actually never do that. I don't no, ever really wanna... stressful. Yeah. So the answer is, uh, it's. I mean, it's just it's just a personal statement, man. You just yeah. and you get feedback on it, and you write some drafts, and you, you know, you have one paragraph at the end that you tailor to every institution that you apply to, and that's what you do. That's yeah. what I did anyway. Yeah, I remember. You know. You just got to look up and it varies from program to program. Like this Mm -hmm. is such a hard thing to answer. Mm -hmm. I know Austin, you said you were interested in dramaturgy programs, Um, which I neither just, yeah, neither (laughs) just nor I went to school specifically for dramaturgy. Um, I do know that programs like that exist. Yep. Um, but I did not apply for any of those, but I would imagine like dramaturgy is all about like the structure of a play, right. And how it reads, to a viewer and also i mean it's a fair amount of research but like production dramaturgy is is really about like how does stuff read within a very specific context that context being the time and place you're performing this show right mm-hmm. um so like and it, so that requires just a lot of like high order high level analytical thinking which like lots of programs training you to do that and i think you know yeah have a writing sample ready most application processes ask for some kind of writing sample whether that's mm-hmm. a personal statement or like some it's usually a, a personal statement and a writing right. sample right? right they want to see that you know how to write scholarly shit. right right and it, yeah and sometimes the only writing sample that they care about or that they want is your personal statement um yeah. i know that for the program that Jess and I both did at Mary Baldwin, we also weirdly had to take the GRE. Oh, <laughs> fuck. Yeah. I fucking forgot about the GREs. I know, God. right? Just blotted it from your memory. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of programs are disposing of that requirement yeah. because the GRE is fucking ableist and classist yeah. as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Like most standardized tests, it was written by white people for white people and centers mm-hmm. kind of only European understandings of everything. Yep. Um, so like yeah, so a lot of programs are doing away with that, and with like the SATs and ACTs too. Yep. Uh, at the undergrad level, but yeah, so like you know, if you have to take the GRE, like study for the GRE. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I remember bombing the math portion of the GRE oh, really, yeah. really badly and then calling our admissions person. Her name was Julie. And I was like, is it going to hurt my chances? And she was like, um, last time I checked, there was no calculus in Shakespeare. So I think you're fine. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yep. okay. That made me yep. feel better. So yep. like, you know, I, st- and again, like, you know, study for that, how you think you should get a test prep book. If you think you should, if you're a bad yeah, test taker, like, I did. a lot of got a test, test anxiety, book then do that, you know, do what you got to do to help you feel armed and dangerous <laughs> mentally in the test, like arm yourself the way you need to. Yeah. Um, okay. Austin also asks, what would you tell yourself before entering grad school and how did you handle finances? I mean, I would tell myself the same thing. I tell every fucking other person I encounter who's like, I want to go to grad school, um, which is do not do this unless you are 1000% sure it is the thing you want to do and the degree is going to help you get the job that you want because grad school is there. I mean, it's, it's kind of the persistent joke in grad school is that it like fucking tanks your mental health and (laughs) tanks your physical health and tanks your financial health. Um, and those things I think are true for just about everybody in, yeah. you know, different kinds of ways. I, my mental health was fine during my master's and then took a nosedive during the PhD. And it's just expensive also. Yeah. Like it just is. Even, even if you have a program that is quote unquote fully funded, you're still usually not being paid really a living wage. Right. Um, and it's, it's hard. It's hard. It is. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself. I I think um, unless you know for a fact that you're not going to be hired as as a dramaturg, which sounds like mm-hmm. your goal, unless you know for sure that you're not ever going to be hired as a dramaturg without a master's degree or better, right? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd recommend doing it, frankly. Um, no, do not take on the debt. Do not take yeah. on the debt unless it's going to actually pay off for you. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that sounds really hypocritical for me, at least, because like, I suppose there is a way to do what I'm doing currently without having an MFA. Like you don't have to have a master's in, you know, a master of fine arts in mm-hmm. Shakespeare and performance to be a director of education at a theater. Right. You sure. don't have not everybody has that same kind of educational background. I did that. I have always wanted an MFA. So that was part of my reason for going in. I was like, that's the pinnacle for me. That's what mm-hmm. I want. And there is something something to be said for like taking on training because it is going to enrich you as a person and like make your life more full. Um, but but yeah, you got to balance that with shit. I'm saddled with debt mm-hmm. forever now. <laughs> yeah. And like forever. I think a lot of people think like, oh, well, you know, I worked my way through college. I can work my way through grad school. Grad school is a full-time job. And unless you are in a program that is specifically like part-time or low residency. Yeah. Or like um, for night, it's like night school. Yeah. Where you can have a job. Yeah. You, you can't in fact work your way through grad school. Um, Yeah. Of course there are exceptions to every rule. We know someone who quite successfully worked their way through grad school. Mm -hmm. Um, I also know people who came into the PhD going, Oh, you know, I worked all through my master's, so this is fine. And then it's not fine. Um, So yeah, the schedules get less and less flexible 
right? With with yeah. grad uh, and PhD programs, like there are just immutable times of the day where you have to be devoted to your work and you can't yeah. do a job, right? It yeah. just pr- basically prohibits you from having a job. Like I had a part-time job through my master's program, mm-hmm. but like that in no way, it gave me a tiny bit of income cushion, mm-hmm. but like I still had to take out the full amount of my loans, right? Same. Even though you know, Stanton is a relatively inexpensive place to live. Like the mm-hmm. cost of living is not mm-hmm. super demanding out here. And still I had to take out my full loan offer. Right. Same, um, same, same, same. Yeah. So how did I handle finances? I mean, I kind of didn't. Yeah, same. <laughs> Loans. Loans is how I handle yeah, finances. That's just, that's just me as a person being kind yeah. of incompetent with my funds too. Like yeah. I'm sure... Yeah. Like, and also I'm just not one of those grind culture people. I'm not one of those people who's like, I will get up at 4 a.m. and work for six hours before going to class. And then I will go and work another job for like another eight hour shift after that. I just can't. Mm -hmm. I cannot. I need sleep and I need downtime to be healthy. Like I can't. I'm not a grinder. I'm just not. But if that's you, though, like if you we definitely had someone in our cohort who was Mm -hmm. 100% like that. And she's got a whole lot less debt than we have. So, so much less. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I don't think she escaped completely. I think she has some, but man, it's significantly less. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if that's you, if you've got the energy and the stamina for that, good for you. Go with God. Same. Yeah, it's a it's a unique journey for everyone. So I would just say do your homework. Mm-hmm. Look up the programs that sound like they're going to, as Jess said, pay off for you. Yeah. And help you in the next step in your career and, and elevate you. Yeah. Um, and then do Ask do about what it takes. Um, job placement stats. Yeah. At any program, anyone ever. Yeah. Ask and alumni about job network, placement. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, how strong yeah. is their alumni network in, in that too? Yeah. And not um, just like, do your grads have jobs, but are your grads working jobs in the field that they want? Yeah. Are those grads able to work just that job or do they have you know four other part-time jobs like those are the questions you gotta ask so yeah um yeah yeah. not not exhaustive but those are some those are some thoughts that we have questions yeah we've also never claimed to be experts on anything (laughs) right that's probably not true i think we both claim to be experts on shakespeare but (laughs) i earned it god damn it with all my dead ten thousand hours (laughs) that makes me an expert yeah. Um, so thank you, Austin, for reaching out to us and for listening continuously. We wish you the best in all of your endeavors. I really, yeah, really good hope. luck. Yeah. I hope you find the program that works for you if you find one. And I hope you, you know, do that dramaturgy thing. OK, it's uh, it's gossip time. Yeah. Yeah. It says Jess News. Oh, right. This is me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I have some news. Yeah. That I'd like to I'd like to share with the class. That's exciting. Um, yeah, I today uh, received an email just, you know, not not five hours ago telling me that uh, I have won the award for outstanding dissertation at the University of Alabama for 2021. <gasps> Yay! <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Congratulations! Thank She's you. done it again, folks. She done won that same fucking award in our master's program, too. I sure did. Outstanding Look at thesis, you. And now I got outstanding dissertation. Oh, man. Um, yeah, so I get... Baby. I get uh, a cash prize. Hey. And I think I get a certificate 
certificate and then my dissertation gets passed on to the college level so the whole college of arts and sciences um and if i win there i get a plaque and more money no uh yes. yeah probably <laughs> probably more cool. money yeah um and also if i win there then i go to the university-wide competition so that's college of arts and sciences college of uh, education business whatever other fucking colleges there are oh my gosh. university of alabama um and if i win at the university level i think they throw me a parade i'm pretty sure they are legally contracted <laughs> to yeah to throw me like, a parade so. straight up ticker tape the whole yeah. nine yards mm-hmm. all of it yep uh yeah right so on. that's my news it's you know a little little bit of good news for a monday um and Aww, I'm, I'm so proud yeah. of you Thank you, you worked baby. so hard i really did i really really did so hard in a fucking pandemic <laughs> yeah i yeah. i can't think of anybody else who would deserve this kind of accolade more than you Aww. so you stop but like don't stop yeah yeah it's nice yeah it's a nice line on the cv uh makes me look sharp and also uh you know is maybe maybe good a good measure that this might actually see the light of day as a book someday yeah yeah so anyway that's that's my news um and you have uh other news you do have other news (laughs) yeah that i had meant to disclose on our sheila corsi episode last episode well which you did but then cut because of i did yeah time and and, yes i cut it for time reasons and also this article that i'm about to talk about had not been released yet so i didn't have a chance to see what peter marks wrote and Mm -hmm. also just other things okay so for those who are new to the pod or you know new to getting to know jess and me i work at the american shakespeare center in stanton virginia ASC has had a turbulent couple of years, mm-hmm. and that's putting it kindly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is for sure what it looks like from the outside. I can yeah. tell you it feels whatever 10 times more than turbulence is um, from the inside. Froward. Um, what? Froward. Froward. Oh. Yeah, that's mm. a that's a nice renaissance word for fucking stormy (laughs) yeah okay i like that great so an article uh in the washington post by peter marks came out on october 6th uh and then uh lauren halverson of nothing the nothing for the group blog also picked it up the week after but uh the article we'll post a link to it on the landing page for this episode basically goes into the story of why asc canceled the remainder of our fall season and blackfriars conference Although the Black First Conference was really like Peter Marks could not give a fuck about our Black First Conference. <laughs> like it's a total like footnote. But but we did cancel those things, both of them together. And the reason we did that has to do with our inability at the time as a company. Well, and it's still true now, I suppose. But our, and our, our inability as a company to make the space, the rehearsal space, safe for difficult conversations surrounding race and ethnicity and other forms of oppression. Um, And all of that to say, really, what we're going through is not unique in the theater industry, which is like sad. (laughs) It's kind of sad. So Peter Marks basically focused on that cancellation. And what it it came down to was we were slated to do a play called Keen by Anshuli Felicia King. It was uh, commissioned as part of our Shakespeare's New Contemporaries project, which is um, to make a new canon of plays that sort of speak to themes in Shakespeare's canon. Uh, and Keen, um, we had wanted, we had originally, before pre-COVID, 
um, before COVID wrecked our budget, we had wanted to do Keen in tandem with Othello because it is a companion piece to Othello. And we couldn't do that <laughs> in 2020. So in 2021, the actor managers who were in charge of choosing this year's season um, tried to resurrect it, right? Uh, and our director came in to do that and very quickly realized that we were not in a place as an organization to tackle these kind of conversations because what Keen is about is <laughs> an all-white academic conference with two people of color in it. And it's about, it centers these two people of color and sort of their journey through the microaggressions of academia. And it's a beautiful, wonderful play. And I hope it has a life elsewhere. I hope somebody else picks it up and decides to do it. It's a fan-fucking-tastic play and I'm gutted that we're not doing it. So that director resigned from the project and that effectively like brought everything we were doing to a halt. I should at this point say, I'm not saying anything that's not in the WAPO article. I'm not gonna say much um, beyond what's in the WAPO article because I am not an official spokesperson of the American Shakespeare Center. Um, although I am in the management group that makes some of these decisions. And speaking of, I need to correct some stuff because Peter Marks was sent these corrections and refused to make them. So I'm going to make them. But he flat out refused? He was sent, yeah, some, he sent us, you know, this article. We sent him some corrections and he refused to make them. He refused to fix them. Um, and I don't know why, but he did. That's not um, good so journalism. First of all, yeah, first of all, this was not a mistake, but I take issue with the fact that he still centered Ethan McSweeney in this entire article and somehow managed to make Ethan McSweeney the center of the fucking story when he has not been part of this company for a year. Sure. <laughs> that pisses me off. But the thing he actually got wrong is he states, and I'm going to read the quote. He says, the four-person actor-manager model, they said, began showing signs of erosion as one of the members, troop standout Brandon Carter, shifted to programming duties. Um, okay, so that was a correction he fixed. In the original article, he said production duties, so he fixed that. Okay, fine. Uh, eventually, according to Kelly Burdick Carter, Brandon's wife, a management committee of six mm. department managers representing production, engagement, and other units replaced the actor-manager model as the company's essential supervisors. This is the part he refused to fix, and this is the part that is entirely inaccurate. The actor-manager model and the managing group were created simultaneously, contemporaneously even. <laughs> they were created at the exact same time. Okay. They were both running, they were both operating at the same time. So um, yes, the actor-manager model has hit some snags and it's not been great because what ended up happening was um, sort of ruining the natural order, natural hierarchy of a rehearsal room, like displacing the stage manager, which anyone who's done a production knows is not a healthy way to run a room. Nope. Um, like stage managers should stay in charge. So like, and so that model has issues, but the managing group has been there the whole time too. They were both operating at the same time. So I needed to fix that. It's not like folks like swooped in mm -hmm. and were like, nope, we're the kids have had fun ruining things now. Now we're taking back the power. That's not what happened. Sure. Um, I think it's tempting to see it that way because the actor manager, the directorless, the artistic directorless company where the actors have agency is like a new old thing, right? And, and that got a lot of press when we first right. did it, but it wasn't like this 
you know, coup of being like, okay, you can't play nice. So we're going to come back with some bureaucrats, <laughs> like some office people are going to do the choices now. It's not, that's not what happened. So anyway, uh, long story short, we weren't ready to have some big conversations about race. We had not, not, not that we weren't ready, but we had not made the changes necessary to make the rehearsal room safe, as safe as we wanted it to be. So I think, you know, what Mayanne, the director of the former director of Keene, what she did in calling a halt really was forced us to take time mm -hmm. and, and reassess and really look hard at, hey, look, we've never stopped running. <laughs> like even in the pandemic, we were one of the few companies that like kept going and going and going after an initial sort of 10 week furlough period. And like we never stopped to examine right. And really flesh things out. So yeah, and that you know, I just to point out that decision to come back early and and to keep going and to pick up, um, yeah. did catch a lot of heat from it did a lot of the theater community. It did, it did. Um, so just to yeah. acknowledge that it did, yeah, it did catch a lot of heat. We yeah. we did keep people safe. Like there still has not been a COVID outbreak, but yeah, it it got us into hot water with the union for sure. Mm -hmm. So like that was a fraught decision as well. So like making a bunch of like decisions for survival maybe is not the best way to keep people safe in the in the long run. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, recently contracted um, Jokaka Consultants. That's Joseph Tony Castaneda Carrera, um, who's a consultant uh, based in L.A., for a nine-month-plus training and organizational, like reorganizational diversity, equity, inclusion program. So we have acted swiftly to to amend some of those problems like this pause is not it's not us just sitting around eating bonbons we're still like <laughs> trying to get work done we're just not um producing while we do it so and that was kind of the same thing with blackfriars conference we were like we can't we can't stop because this half of the house is on fire and then still do a conference in the other half of the house like we had to yep. stop both of them um so and it was a bummer and people were bummed out but also very generous so far have been very generous with like yeah. Okay. You guys do what you need to do. Um, yeah. So that was a really scattershot. I just can't get any better at, at narrating what happened. I just can't. I've been trying and trying and trying to like explain fine. all the things that happened. It feels very jumbled. It's been a slog. So yeah. are we okay? Not really, but we're not as bad as we were. <laughs> we're yeah. not, you know, so, so we're, um, we're taking care of our people right now. Yeah. I think so. you're, you're on the path to, yeah being okay to being better at we least are. we are we are sounds like some some concrete changes yeah are coming yeah. um some you know pruning away of uh, i'm trying to make like a gardening metaphor dead <laughs> limbs uh yeah where those dead limbs were you know outdated practices or bad practices or yeah you know i'm yeah I'm happy to hear yeah. it. I'm I'm actually excited for what comes next. Um, Yay! So, yeah, it was touch and go there for a minute, but I'm now excited about what comes next. It's good. So that's what I got. That's all I have to say about that. Um, and that's it. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. We hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started. Tune in next time. We're finally doing the atheist tragedy, y'all. I can't. Fucking wait. Yes. Buckle I'm so excited. up. Fucking buckle up. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Wham it out. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. If you enjoyed our podcast, 
please tell your friends, rate us, leave a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. For show notes and other stuff, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or at hurlyburlyshake, no S, on Twitter. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which I record the Muskegee Creek Nation and pay my respect to their elders past and present. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land currently referred to as Stanton, Virginia, the Monacan and Manahoac Nations, and pay my respect to their elders past and present. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Comedy Bears wasn't being performed in London, like, pretty much at all. Um, so... So, did you see my brain just stop working? <laughs> did I you did. see it just, I it thought just the screen shut down? Froze. Nope, yeah. <laughs> that was that was my brain shutting down. Oh, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start over. I'm gonna take that. Yeah, again. Jesus, <laughs> it <laughs> just Monday. stopped. It just stopped. <laughs> yeah, <It's> been, <laughs> been there, friend. Yeah. Oh yeah, okay. I've been there. All right, let me try it again.